Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. All right, I think um, we might make a start. So, Warami, hello, and Walawani. We hope you've all had a safe time coming here, a safe journey, and that's, that's first. Um, and before we proceed uh, any further, I'd like to acknowledge the ongoing custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney stands. We pay our respects to elders past and present um, and to those who have cared for and continue to care for this territory, Gadigal. Um, my name is Aaron Nardis. I'm a lecturer in American Studies here at the University of Sydney and a cultural historian. It's a real pleasure for me to, to welcome you to this, to this event. Um, it'll be an exciting and uh, kind of wide-ranging um, conversation, also a harrowing conversation, a difficult one. Um, so thanks to Sydney Ideas and to the U.S. Studies Center um, for, for helping us you know, to pull this together. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge the support of Lisa Jackson-Polver, who's the DVC um, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Indigenous uh, Strategy and Services, who we, we've spoken to this about, and she was very supportive of this event. Um, and it's a discussion that really promises to be, I think, rich and complex. Um, and we're going to talk about documentary film, uh, repatriation, um, and the role of Indigenous languages um, in re re repatriation, but also in the kind of um, ongoing project of, of decolonizing um, colonized places. Um, and, and before we get into that conversation, I just want to introduce our distinguished panelists. Um, and I'll, I'll start um, with Professor Jacqueline Troy, who is the director of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. She's the author of The Sydney Language and King Plates, A History of Aboriginal Gorets. Her research, uh, her research currently is focusing on documenting, describing, and reviving indigenous languages with a new focus on the indigenous languages of Pakistan. So I hope someone asks her about during, that during the Q&A because I'm fascinated. Um, she has two Australian Research Council discovery projects, one with uh, Professor John uh, Maynard on the history of Aboriginal missions and reserves in Eastern Australia and the history of Aboriginal people who were not institutionalized. The other discovery project is about the practice of corroboree by Aboriginal people in the assimilation period of the mid 20th century in Australia. She's interested in the use of Indigenous research methodologies and community engaged research practices. She's an Aboriginal Australian and her community is the uh, Naragu of the Snowy Mountains in the southern eastern part of Australia. Martin Thomas, uh, to my left, is a cultural historian who specializes in Australian and Aboriginal and transnational history. He has published in areas of environmental history, landscape studies, cross-cultural encounter, expeditions and exploration, history, the history of anthropology, and on the impact of sound recording and photography. Um, he's a professor of history at the Australian National University and is the author of an award-winning biography, The Many Worlds of R.H. Matthews in Search of an Australian Anthropologist. Dr. Um, Beatrice Bijon is a scholar of English literature and women's history, and she's a visiting fellow at the Australian National University. She's edited several books on literature and travel and is the co-author of Suffragiste, Suffragette, excuse my French, I'm sorry <laughs> for doing violence to the title, um, um, Suffragists and Suffragettes, recently published in her native France. Um, she's a curator also of an upcoming National Library of Australia uh, collection in focus called Deeds Not Words, The Bessie Reichsbiff collection. So um, the impetus for tonight's conversation is, an, is a new documentary um, called Etched in Bone, which was uh, made over the course of a decade in Western Arnhem Land. And it's a shocking and kind of harrowing story, um, but it's a true document. 
Um, and it tells the story of a 1948 Australian-American expedition to Arnhem Land, during which an Amer American anthropologist, Frank Seltzer, stole human remains from a sacred site in Yulak and carried them back to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And kind of what Martin Beatrice's documentary does is kind of exhibit a close and creative and philosophical collaboration, I think, with the community in Gunvalanya, and especially the old man at the center of the film, Jacob, who's a kind of magnetic presence, and his spirit is felt throughout the entire, the entire documentary. Um, and so, better than me, talking about it, I think, would be to let the, the film speak for itself. So we're going to, for those of you who haven't seen it, we did screen it last night, but we're going to play the trailer before we begin um, our kind of conversation about the making of the film and the issues that it raises. So um, let's just have a, have a quick look. They would wait until someone died. Uh, they would get their old bones and then they would take them up onto the hill and put them in a cave and they would put them to sleep then in their own country, in their own territory. to Arnhem Land. Many, many thousands of indigenous people from outside the United States were collected. Indigenous bodies were especially prized. When I heard that was happening, these people were taken away. And I thought, okay, I want them and their spirit. And this is their land. This is where they should be buried and left. This is a true story. Real true document. It will go back to my grandson and grandson, grandson. And will go on forever. So I thought we might start our conversation with the film and with the making of the film. And, and Martin, you've been with this project for over a decade. Um, and I just thought maybe you might like to start by talking about what drew you to it and the kind of process of, of making it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And um, thank you for uh, convening this panel, um, Aaron. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional elders, uh, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And uh, I'd also like to say we are going to be um, naming um, Aboriginal people who have passed away um, in the course of this um, conversation. Um, the mourning rituals for these people um, have ended now and uh, we are naming and, and showing publicly uh, with the authority of uh, re relevant relatives and with the community in Gunbalanya. 
So um, how did I get involved in this? Well, um, you know, I did what historians do, which is searching in archives. And I was particularly looking at uh, historic media um, relating to, to, the, to the way white fellas had initially sort of gone and used recording technology to get songs and so forth, um, probably to blackfellas in Arnhem Land. Mm-hmm. Started with that. I found really interesting material um, from this 1948 expedition, which I really knew nothing about. But it quickly, quickly um, became apparent that um, ethically, interpretively, for all sorts of reasons, uh, this, these objects, these historic songs, meant nothing without consultation uh, with the people who actually had the uh, intellectual property mm-hmm. in that material. And that's, and that's what got me uh, to Western Arnhem Land. And uh, anyway, I knew people who knew people. I had the very good fortune uh, to be introduced uh, to uh, a number of wonderful old people um, now all passed away, unfortunately. And one of them was Jacob Nyengel, who you've just seen in that, in that little clip. Jacob was an incredible guy. He uh, just had this extraordinary um, gravitas. He was, he was a, in his prime, and, and, and I met him sort of uh, several years just before the sort of, the sort of collapse into ill health and, and a wheelchair and so forth that, that we see there. He was a towering figure. Um, he was always crowned by this um, black cowboy hat. Uh, he had an extraordinary gravitas in the community, because he was one of the last people born around about 1940, one of the last people um, to have been born out in the bush, rather in the mission, um, in Owen Pelly, as Gunbalanya, the town, is, was generally known at that time. And so um, it's important to say that he, um, he scoped both the mission world and uh, the ha- having learnt English there, but having uh, been sort of brought up in uh, a number of the indigenous um, languages of the area. And and quite a few of them have, in fact, been, in a way, kind of eased out, I suppose, by the arrival of another um, Aboriginal language called Gunwink in that area, uh, brought with um, immigrants to the town from the east. So uh, there are all these sorts of complexities, but uh, linguistic knowledge and uh, a great competency um, across language uh, Jacob was a brilliant translator and he was um, involved in some, uh, long before we knew him, um, the land rights um, campaigns. He was very involved in, 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 in the legislation and enactment back in the 70s. And just um, when Beatrice and I were um, up in Gunbalanya most recently, just a couple of months ago, in fact, to do a, a launch of the film there, uh, we got shown all this old film from TV footage and, and, and all this stuff from, of, of, of Jacob. And there was even one of him as a good missionary boy. Um, remember how people in Queensland and the likes, used to, men used to wear these tailored um, shorts um, with always with the long white socks that sort of miraculously stood up thanks to those little less. Jacob wearing this, what was that happening you know, at, a, at a church service? But, but, but the man we knew um, was um, 
And he's the guy um, with ochre um, all over him um, leading this mm -hmm. ceremony. So um, it was due to this connection um, with him that the well that the film got made. In mm -hmm. fact, he's the chief voice. He's the chief um, interview through mm -hmm. the film. And uh, having uh, done having done some research on this 1948 expedition and having found. Uh, in fact, a lecture film uh, created by an American archaeologist, Frank Setzler, who we named. Uh, Frank Setzler's lecture film had an astonishing um, scene in it. We see some parts there of, of, of bones being stolen and, and, and of collected from a site that is very, very identifiable to everybody um, in that community. Now, a repatriation claim had already been made for those bones. But uh, the, here we begin to see, in fact, film and historic media from collections coming back to community and coming back to the, to the places that have a real investment in that material. Uh, in fact, this becomes a whole sort of parallel event um, to the repatriation of physical human remains themselves. So... Um, I warned Jacob. Um, I said, "Look, there's there's this horrible film of a, of a man collecting the item, and yeah, play it. Played it on my laptop. That's how sort of lots of this film got disseminated. And I mean, he was absolutely livid uh, mm -hmm. when he saw this. And uh, it was a really interesting <coughs> because it, it it opens up a, a lot of pain, and we ended up having a lot of discussion. Well." If we're actually going to sort of make a, a movie about this business, do we, do we show this? Do, do we kind of reproduce that pain? Uh, his call was that, that, that we did have to reproduce it, I think in a way so that a wider public would be able to experience the pain and shock and, and somehow um, emotionally understand the meaning of, of what had happened there. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, you know, these events became the sort of stimulus for filmmaking, for documentation, in fact, mm. in our own right. And um, you think about the documentary in a way as sort of an, an antidote um, to, to things that happened on the expedition. Um, and sort of final thing about that, of, of being able to document the, the, bone, the homecoming of the bones, the ceremony that was performed and so forth, it became very, very obvious uh, that that Jacob, being in a sort of greatly diminished state, but his authority, I think, had actually sort of increased, mm. um, was preparing for his own for his own passing. And I'll, and I'll sort of say one thing about that because we're we're very used to this um, euphemism: um, uh, people have passed away, and mm. and I think it, but it also does mean something. It means going going somewhere. But, but I wanted to pick up on a, a line used by another elder in the film, Joe, Joe Gumbler, and, and, and we asked, what's, what, well, what's the meaning of, of, in fact, bones, human bones? And, and, and he said, well, bones, um, he didn't talk about when, when one's, one has died or passed away. He talked when we become a dead person. Mm -hmm. And I just think that there is like a world of difference between this notion of dying and becoming a dead person. Uh, this was part of 
of of Jacob uh, in in intending in in attending to those bones and doing the right thing and getting them back into their country was part of his own transition in terms of becoming a dead person. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, Beatrice, I'd like to talk to you a little bit as well about your role in kind of constructing the film. And one of the remarkable things about watching it, and I encourage everyone to, um, you know, uh, find it on DVD or Vimeo, um, it kind of has this soundscape that's transportive right from the first frame, you know, um, and, and, and it's sort of the kind of crescendo of, of, of the bush really kind of takes us to some degree, into, into this country as, as, as well as cinema can, right? Um, and so do you want to talk a little bit about that, the relationship of kind of making a film about a place and kind of trying to capture its spirit and its kind of language? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. so the, the first time I went to Arnhem Land and started doing some work there was uh, 2012. And the images and sound I remember... Mm-hmm. Uh, what I keep of that time was is very much what we see in the film, mm-hmm. and we wanted to capture the landscape and the soundscape of of the of the place. Um, so you know the, the screeching sound of the corellas that we hear in the in the trailer, the uh, northern kookaburras, um, flying foxes, and um, but also more subtly the the crunchy sound of the dry grass, and. Um, I think everybody who's been there um, knows what I'm, I'm talking about. And the sound of the bark being torn um, off the, um, the tree trunk that we see also in the film. But also these sounds cannot be separated from, from the smell, in fact, and from the heat of, of the place. You know, the, um, the, the smell, the dry smell, in fact, of the dirt road and the, uh, you know, the intense heat of the place, sometimes very dry, sometimes wet, depending on, on the season. So this is country, and this is Jacob Nyingold's country, and uh, it is country that we, saw, we, we, see, we show sorry, um, in the film. And we also did a lot of work regarding music, and uh, um, our composer, we didn't want a music that would be a filler or an illustration. So our composer came up with a music that is really a voice. And um, it's really responsive to the soundscape. Uh, oh, completely. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and to the, the rhythms yeah. and music that's in the And yeah. the evocation of sound, in fact, is a reminder of the way the landscape is completely inhabited. Right. And talking about the places inhabited, it's also inhabited by the spirits. So it is the story of um, the repatriation of bones, but when they repatriate bones, they also repatriate spirits. So that um, it's really interesting in the film and in the story, and what we wanted to show in the film is the way uh, spirits are responsive to uh, smell, for instance. You know, we, there is a scene when uh, sweat is rubbed on the boxes uh, in which the bones are, so they're responsive to smell. They're also responsive to sound. You know, when the bones are um, sung back to their country, where they are talked back to the country in their original languages, the original indigenous languages that they would have spoke. They would have spoken at the time. There's also even an anecdote. At some point, um, the elders were worried that 
these bones had been kept in an American museum for more than 60 years would have been disturbed by the American accent. So um, you have to think about the, um, the, the spirit as being sentient, right? They, 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 there is, in the film, we wanted to open up to a, a realm that would be sensory, in fact. And I guess also something else we wanted to capture um, in the film is the presence of Jacob. And of course, he's there all the time. He's an amazingly charismatic figure in, in his community, but also I think in the film, he loved being filmed and played with it. And he had that awareness that uh, what he was doing, what he was creating was extremely important for the present, but also for future generations. But there is... Um, 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 a, a scene I particularly like is the, the final scene, in fact, uh, of the film. Um, so you have to uh, imagine um, a huge vista um, taken up from um, an escarpment. So there is a very intense orange light and um, smoke in the distance burning off and smoke and the smoke merging with a cloud. So you have to imagine that two birds just flew past and so we're showing this is Jacob's country and so we we hear Jacob but we don't see him we hear his voice at the time it was the last time uh, Martin you saw him and he was very frail and his voice we hear his voice it's a very weak very frail voice so we had that footage of him and he was extremely skinny extremely gaunt and we were always a bit disturbed by these images. We, were, we felt they were extremely private, extremely intimate. So we talked a lot about, about that with the community, with, their, um, uh, with his uh, daughters and sons. And eventually we decided not to show him. But, I mean, it's incredible in this scene because Jacob is not visually present. But he's so amazingly present through his voice. And also, of course, because it's the end of the film. And... I particularly like this film, uh, this um, this scene, because we get a sense of uh, that we're coming to an end at many levels, in fact. And as Martin is saying, you know, um, Jacob is about to become a dead person, and that's the end of the film. That's the end of the itinerary. This is the end of of a route. And it's also this footage, the um, the, the landscape I'm, I'm talking about, was the last time. We uh, we did the footage. It was late October 2016. Last shoot. Yeah, it was yeah. the last yeah. shoot. Yeah. Mm. So it was just before the wet season started. There was that tension in the air, and so we walked. We we were we had just gone away from um, Gumbalonia, and uh, we did that walk up the escarpment with our cameraman and the sound guy, and um, the cameraman started filming and. And that's what we use. So it's a special, it was a special moment in the film and for us also as a, as filmmakers. And when I was last night, when I was reflecting on that, it feels regarding the landscape, there is a kind of rhapsody, in fact, in, uh, in the landscape. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's beautifully captured. It sort of becomes a character unto its own. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or as uh, Ankle Ray said yesterday, you know, it's more that um, the country owns you. Yeah, and I thought it was a wonderful way of putting mm -hmm. things, yeah. Okay, I'd love to get your perspective as a, as a linguist and a scholar of indigenous languages. But before I, we move on to that, I thought I might just ask you about your, your experience as an audience member of the film like me. We don't 
come from the kind of production side of it, but just your response to it as a, as a viewer, I'm curious to know. Mm. Well, um, first I'd also like to say something in the language of the people here, Gadigal, nearly Nalawangun Bujuri Gadinura. So we are meeting here today on the beautiful country of the Gadigal people. It's not my language, but I've had the privilege to work with community here over many years to have this language being spoken again. Um, and I am Nayanamichimitong. I am Yamich um, of the Snowy Mountains. We get called broadly Naragu. Um, and my own response to this has, um, I guess I've had a few responses. I reviewed it again today, watched the film again today, and um, I found it uh, extremely emotional on a personal level. I was transported to thinking about um, a burial in my own country that uh, was unearthed when I, there was a flood went through some years back and um, a 7,000-year-old, so a Pleistocene burial of Aboriginal people, Nadagu people from near Kuma, um, was revealed and the bones had evidence of um, ochre on them, um, pollen. Um, and I, look, I think about the final image of Jacob, which is really his, um, the old fella, his, his burial with flowers all over it. Mm -hmm. um, we've always, and indeed I believe the Mungo burials were understood to be, um, people were interred with, um, there's pollen in the, there's pollen around those people, so they evidently were buried with um, plant material, flowers. So, um, you know, I guess it's the the respect, the gentleness that we as Indigenous people of Australia have always shown towards each other and indeed towards all of you, everybody here. I acknowledge all Australians as my country people and I think that's what came through in the film to me is that and Jacob makes that very clear a few times, old fella. He says, this is about all of us, you know, all of the non-Aboriginal people who were there as part of your film and involved in the ceremony were as much a part of the return of the spirits of those people um, and paying respects to them as um, were the local community. And uh, these people who were found in my country, it was a young man and a middle-aged woman um, buried together, um, and they were reburied by the Bega Land Council, I believe. But their grave goods, um, there's a necklace and a, a stone, some stone artefacts and bone artefacts that are in the National Museum of Australia. So they, again, you know, we we are continually living with this sort of, I guess, robbing of our important places, the um, removal of our. Um, I guess our spirit from country. Um, we're not allowed to live on country. Um, my country is the playground of the rich and famous, the snow fields of Australia. Um, I'm fortunate that my mother built one of the, well built the first ski lodge at Threadbow um, for good reason. She wasn't going to be turfed off country, and I grew up with that country. Um, it does own you. There's that feeling which comes through very much in that film. And I felt the tension between um, people being buried up in the, um, their bones being placed in the rock shelter or the decision by old fella to put them in the ground on in their country, um, return them wrapped in melaleuca and paperback. Um, so 
I recently thought about trees embracing us and being mm. something that, are, you know, they are sentient. The trees look after us too. Everything in our world is sentient. Um, and Could they I just were. Add a tiny detail to that, but mm. when we were showing the footage, in fact, to um, uh, Joe Gumbula's family on Elko Island, um, we had a, well, it was sort of re- revealed to us that, that a baby, in fact, a cradle is made um, at, also out of yeah. paper bark. And this was sort of, yep. it's, it's the first thing you touch when, when you come and when you go. Yes, um, that's right. that sort of symmetry. About, that lovely yeah. softness of paper bark, you yeah. know, it's very important for women um, mm. and um, people through their lives. And I think, you know, this very um, important use of language in the film um, really, I guess, speaks to um, – the spirit of the country. At one point, Alfala says, um, I'm using four languages in this burial because I'm not sure where these people are from, but I'm going to talk to them in these languages and particularly two of them and one in particular. And I was really intrigued. I thought maybe this is the ceremonial language used for burial. I think morning, morning. And um, so, and he's speaking in languages that are, you know, now, um, you know, if we don't all get behind these languages and support them, who wouldn't want to know an Australian language? Who wouldn't want to know that my the mountain in my country is not Kozlushko, named after a Polish count? It's Gunamanamaji. It's it's the place, the increased place for snow where my clan lives, you know. So all through this film, old fella is saying, you know, this is what we call, this is how we talk to people. We talk to them in language. We talk to country in language. And the talking is really important, um, so the use of language. And at the end he, he uses Aboriginal English. In a, and I can remember as a small child growing up all my life is if something's bloody bad, um, it's bloody bad, you know. And um, he says stealing is bloody bad. It's no, no good. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no bloody good, you know, and you mustn't do this. That's what these people did. He's controlled anger, you know, and those, that, that, those eyes of his that are like burning holes in the 1948 expedition mm. and that idiot that took those bones in the first place. Um, and he was an idiot. He was blurry bad. Mm. So I really, I liked this kind of use all the way through and even saying, you know, Uwam Peli is now um, Gumbalunga and, um, you know, it's got its name back too. So, um, but, you know, there is this embracing in the use of language of that we are people of the here and now. We are Aboriginal people now. You know, I sit in front of you. I haven't been colonised, sorry, if anybody wants to decolonise me. Um, I don't. I was never colonised, neither were my people. I'm still Aboriginal. That's just how it is. I'm Yamich. That's it. And um, I think that's what old fellow was saying is, look, mm-hmm. you know, we do things our way. And, um, you know, you do things your way and we do things together and that's what this country is about. It's not about the invasion and colonisation anymore. It's about putting things right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's fantastic. I, I, I want to kind of move on from the discussion of the film but try to keep languages and, and, and film in the picture here. Um, but this is the, the film speaks to this sort of larger kind of global uh, phenomenon of the suppose 
collecting and, and categorizing of, of, you know, um, of course, of, of, of human remains, which we, we've been discussing, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, ludicrous, you know, terrible sort of things that are that are happening. But also, you know, um, you know, there's tensions between the British Museum and the Elgin Marbles, the kind of looting of Guatemalan kind of jars during the, the Civil War from Mayan temples. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, Peter, so how do you understand the kind of the role of documentary filmmaking in kind of handling this history? It's a kind of painful history. It's a flawed history. So it's a history that needs to be set right. Um, and so where does the, the sort of film come in as a, as a tool of that? Well, in fact, I think from the beginning, we thought that a, um, making a film would be the right response and would be the appropriate medium, in fact, to, um, if not, well, to, to set things right, because it was mm -hmm. that element of advocacy is important to us in the film. But um, it was right because, in fact, it was filmic from the beginning. You know, that guy, that idiot, it's a nice way of putting things, um, you know, stealing the bones. And, of course, he was a sort of, um, it's the kernel of the film. Okay. And what we don't see in the film is that, um, so he went up the, um, the, the rock in Yalak Hill and stole the, bo the bones. So, in fact, he, there were several takes. He had a cameraman with him and he, he asked that guy to film him when the native boy was asleep. So it was that paradox, you know, he, he did it on the sly, but at the same time he wanted to keep a record of it to further, you know, perform the whole event. So there are several takes. So there is that central event that is extremely um, performative and extremely filmic. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when we think about museum, we always, we very often think about collection, about artifact. But the 1948 exhibition, uh, expedition, sorry, they collected, um, you know, miles of film, hours of sound recording, thousands of photos. And all this material was staffed, in fact, by the Smithsonian one, Setzler and the others <coughs> were back to the States. So, um, and also Setzler, uh, after he went back to the States, made a 90-minute documentary film and as the curator he had to go and show the film so there is that elements in fact of entertainment and show you know entertaining audiences with these shots in fact with these I mean horrific shots really so that's why from the beginning we thought that the film was the right medium to respond to that it's also I think um uh, this material, this filmic material, and you, Martin, showing the footage of Setzler stealing the bones to Jacob. Um, um, films, I think, could also be, can also sometimes be more accessible than documents in English uh, to indigenous community, and is certainly what happened in, in, in Gumbalanya. So it seemed for us the right medium mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, to set things straight, in fact. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, it's interesting that, in fact, the filmmaking became incorporated into the whole um, repatriation process. Right. It is a and, form of repatriation, yeah. yes. And so that when a, a delegation of Arnhem Landers um, went to the Smithsonian to bring um, the bones home, when, when the, the Smithsonian finally um, mm. agreed, and uh, that, that was a big struggle in its own right, uh, but Jacob was, was too sick to be able to do that. Um, I had the great um, privilege of travelling with a, our cameraman, um, Alice Hondo, to, to go there. Yeah. And so we documented, we filmed everything, and that's the whole Washington part of the shoot. And 
Jacob watched every frame of that footage when when we got home. So mm-hmm. he knew exactly what had been performed and what had been said um, to to the spirits um, over there. And uh, so I think um, you know there's, there is that sort of original multimedia um, aspect of the expedition and as, as a, a museum practice, um, and the fact that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I think, as, as you said, uh, Indigenous people, um, non-literate people, as many people up there, can really work with this medium mm. and use it to their own ends. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what, well, I mean, what about the the role of kind of the, the museum? Indeed, that's what needs kind of de-imperializing or decolonizing, right? Is the museum to some degree? And the Smithsonian yeah. was incredibly reticent to return. Um, you know ancestral remains and banned cameras and things like that so it's there's a challenge here right and yeah um, and and your film is taking on that challenge to some degree so yeah uh, look i think that is true and um i think museums across the world are under pressure to de-imperialize or at least to show that they are de-imperializing and uh you know so many you know our illustrious cultural institutions in in this country, big institutions like the British Museum, they are getting people from the Pacific and Africa. I mean, they, you know, they really are. And, and, and of course, potentially you can can enrich these collections enormously by bringing that contemporary knowledge into Mm. conjunction with it. But I think, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, when we get to the Elgin Marbles or something, there will be some point um, in the journey towards deimperialization <laughs> mm. beyond which they will not go. Mm, sure. yeah. uh, and uh, certainly international repatriation of uh, human remains was a big sticking point mm. um, at the Smithsonian. There were, there were physical anthropologists who really valued mm. these collections. And still do. And still do. Yep. And uh, they, they've been forced by um, federal law, since, in fact, since the early 90s, mm-hmm. to return material to federally recognised US tribes. Yes. But this, this is a whole transnational collection. Mm-hmm. That's the whole idea of the collection, that it would be comparative and it would, you'd have examples from everywhere. Right. So there are lots of, you know, White people and African American people, there are all sorts. Everybody's mm. in this collection. Yeah. <laughs> We're all represented. Yeah. Um, and, um, but so, so then with, with this legislation, the Indigenous American remains had to go home. They've been doing that. They figured they could hold on to the overseas stuff. Sure. Yeah. At least. And they mm. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in law yeah. in the 90s only resulted from a series of grave robbings in the 70s and the field museum's pressure. So, I mean, there's a continuous kind of problem here. Yeah, it's a late response. It's yeah. a continuous yeah. problem. But getting back to your point, too, about the, you know, what role film can play mm-hmm. um, in, in all of this. Well, I think, um, you know, you, 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 can, you can look at our different sort of generations of filmmaking that are actually sort of represented in in, in, in our film, um, and uh, you know, every every film has a, a point of view or points of view embedded in it. It also envisages a particular sort of audience, 
and it became very clear, you know, when I showed that bone-stealing film to Jacob, when Frank Setzler made that film, he never envisaged that mm-hmm. a, a binning course, per- yeah. person, that an Aboriginal person could, would ever, in, in some way he just thought, they well, they'd just fade out or something. But God that's knows. the history of colonisation. That's right. Colonisers never envisaging, you know, when taking photographs or filming, that yeah. there would be a, it would be shown to the people they were actually filming or. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, it runs across, you know, all avenues of colonisation. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and, and certainly something I feel as being, you know, a white person um, in this country and having had certain structural benefits from imperialisation, it's, it's all very well to say uh, museums should imperial de-imperialise, of course they should, but we, we've got to learn how to de-imperialise uh, ourselves, ourselves right. yeah. and, and bring that into our own um, lives, creative practice or whatever, whatever it is um, that, that yeah. we do. And I think, um, you know, you don't want to sort of start getting sort of too virtuous and say, well, hey, we've, we've done it because no. you, you, yeah. it's always, it's these, these are aspirational yeah. Yeah. Um, objectives. But certainly, you know, a couple of times now when, when we've watched the, the complete film um, with binning audiences, with Arnhem, Arnhem Land audiences, and, and because of the amount of um, uh, Indigenous language in the film, there's a way in which they understand it much better than, than we do, don't they? Oh, we, they we've do, got the yeah. subtitled version, and they laugh at all this stuff that, we still don't yeah, get there the are things that are funny. <laughs> there are things that are funny, and That's we understand right. why they're laughing. <laughs> yeah. But on a numer- on numerous occasions. <laughs> We can see that there is something that we don't get, and that's that's quite good, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jackie, I'd like to get your perspective as a scholar of Indigenous languages a little more. I mean, how do you see? Could you expand our view of the, the role that languages have played in this kind of history of collecting and 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 kind of this project? Yeah. Well, um, along with stealing bones, um, languages were stolen. Um, by the way in which I was able to. I guess reconstruct, which is kind of what I've done with the language of the Sydney area, is um, I worked from a series of notebooks that were created in the late um, 1700s when this area was first invaded and um, the first fleet officers um, that were sent out here with Arthur Phillip to establish a, a colony, well, they were invaders and they stole lots of stuff, <laughs> and amongst the stuff they stole were, um, was the language of this area. And I say stole because they stole the environment from the people who spoke the language. And in stealing and altering the environment in the way that these people did, they made that special connection with country something that was really difficult to sustain in the way that people had always been able to sustain it. So right where we are now used to be a kangaroo ground and it was very carefully husbanded. Um, People had managed the environment so that there was thick forest where kangaroo felt comfortable to retreat into. There was lower um, sort of shrubby foresty areas that they liked to rest around in during the day and there were open grassy tracks down to that magnificent pond called after the Lake Victoria (laughs) in the middle of um, the park down the road from the university. And when they needed to harvest kangaroo, people would drive them up the hill and um, spear them and they they couldn't get through into the thick forest so they could harvest them. So, you know, this was an environment that obviously had language around it and language 
the practices that people had of um, their everyday lives, the the kinds of um, events people held, you know, corroboree, the word corroboree we know, garibara is to sing and dance. Well, where the hell would you sing and dance if someone's stuck a bloody big government house on top of your dance ground? Um, you know, the places where people, the tooth avulsion ceremony where boys were made into men, um, built a um, bloody big botanical gardens on top of that full of um, non-Indigenous trees, um, cut down the local trees, so, you know, trees that had been used for probably centuries to make the things you wrap children in when they're born and the things you wrap people in when they die were cut down. So by altering this world around here, the language was, I, I see it as stolen and people began to um, move into speaking a contact language, New South Wales Pidgin I called it. I've done did my doctoral research on that langu- early language contact and the development of this new Pidgin language, um, which has become the base for a lot of these Creoles spoken around Australia that are new languages. So, um, and But in this little notebook, set of notebooks is um, a remarkable record of the language of this area that gave me enough information to understand how the language worked, a whole lot of vocabulary, gave me some idea of the sound system. And, of course, local people have knowledge as well. So between us, you know, it's been... Um, a process of people also doing what they want with their own language too. Mm-hmm. But those notebooks were then taken back to England and they're in the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and they um, should be repatriated to Australia. They are the earliest records of Australian of an Australian language for this area um, and amongst the earliest records altogether for any Australian language. And... Um, I really um, think that they are like stealing bones. You know, this language was stolen, the people and their language were um, imposed upon so much that you don't hear that language around Sydney on an everyday basis Mm. anymore, although the mob's looking at getting that going again and they're doing Mm. a great job. Um, But it's, it's that kind of stealing of culture as well and stealing of the ability to keep your practices going. Um, Mm. Is, is so destructive and uh, so it's, you know, you take you take the heart and the soul and the physical remains of people. And I wanted to also say that, um, you know, this business of bone collecting and body part collecting has been going on for such a long time. It began right at the, it began, began when the country was first invaded because there was already an interest in the 18th century, indeed before that, in collecting um, examples of um, humans and um, to the point where um, Tukanini, who's a very famous Aboriginal woman of Tasmania, Balawa woman, when she was dying, she was terrified that she would end up like her other country people um, as a museum exhibit and indeed she did end up as a museum exhibit and um, the, it took a long time for the Palawa to be able to get her remains and um, bury her the way she should have been or, you know, allow her to be dead in the way that she should have been allowed to be dead as an Aboriginal person. We've just um, recently repatriated some remains just in the last few days of um, from our Nicholson Museum collection here. So there was a smoking ceremony down in Victoria Park um, while these remains were dealt with. But Aboriginal people all over the world, Indigenous people, have lived in fear of being collected, headhunted, 
by the British and others. Um, and I was mortified when I watched this film to mm. see that as part of the military um, assault on Indigenous people in North America, um, people were collected there. So after terrible battles where mm. people fought against the American um, military, um, they were then collected afterwards and um, put into museums. So, And in Bathurst, um, Western New South Wales in the 1830s, there was a hunt club that used to have Aboriginal heads, images of Aboriginal people on their buttons of their hunting jackets and people, including small children, were hunted mm. on horseback and people would take their stirrup off and swing it and knock the people on the head and kill them, and then they would collect them. And some one group of people were hunted into a swamp and shot and then their heads removed and boiled down and sent in crates to Sydney as souvenirs to go back to England and to Europe as souvenirs. So, you know, it's behind this story is, um, you know, that's relatively benign what was going on there, but mm. look at Oldfella's reaction. But imagine living in a world where you could look forward to being, you know, hunted and boiled down and turned into a museum um, collection, you know. It's just a shocking thing. It's, it's ghastly beyond words, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and then, um, I think it speaks also to um, Jacob's sense of kind of achievement and satisfaction. <coughs> there, there was a beautiful image you gave of like kind of the, the bones going back into the paper bark and kind of being returned. And I thought I'd play just a clip. It's it's sort of, um, you know, it's about the intimacy of, with death and, and, and the kind of returning um, the body. But it's also an important point in which language is being, um, you know, Jacob is adamant that people speak, speak. The cameras are, are recording and, 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 and talk and, and, mm. and he's speaking in multiple languages. And so I thought we might just play a little and bit of using, that. And probably using language that was specifically for ceremony because on a daily basis to be Aboriginal, including in this area, of course, most people would operate in at least nine languages. So mm. that's not languages from other areas. There, Everybody had, um, there's men's business language, women's business language. So these are languages for ceremony, etc. to do with just men and women. There would be the language of everyday communication. There's separate language for children, an actual language, not just oogly boogly stuff that people mm. go on with for children. There is song language. There is um, love poetry, magic language, mm. mother-in-law language, which is to make sure that mothers-in-law and sons-in-law never end up as museum objects um, mm. So after mm. killing each other. So, um, you know, we've got this sort of, um, you know, language was, the way he used language in the film, old fella, was, um, you know, languages were like using a wonderful palette of colour that you would paint a beautiful picture with. He was... Um, using the language that was appropriate at that moment for whatever he was doing. So he didn't just, you know, he was how Aboriginal Australia is and still is to a degree uh, multilingual and yeah. using language for very specific purposes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, Thank you for setting that up. So just watch. <coughs> um, and it is, you know, there's a kind of, as I said, intimacy with death and the handling of bones in this in scene. But... Do it, Two at a time, bring two out here and grab it. Go on, weapon. 
Well, we do men first, and women. You're rubbing the ochre on them. It means it's dressing. Stretching the dress. So you've just been talking to them a bit while we've been here. In there. Mm -hmm. yeah, right, yeah. So that gives you a sense, right, of, mm. of the kind of multi his multilingual gifts, right, are part of why he's the authority here yeah, to introduce and introducing yeah. himself and thinking through what is the most appropriate language, and he decides Minga is the one to um, talk to them, mm. and he tells them, of course, who he is and uses specific language for that. Cornwinkle, um, mm. yeah, that's what it is. And, that's um, but that's that's that kind of respect and incorporation um, because he doesn't quite know who these people are. He knows they're from the area, but right. doesn't know who they are. So he has to be very careful how mm. he talks to them because their spirits are there. Mm. And then he says at the end how some old fellow is sitting next to him, um, yeah. and he felt the presence of maybe there's another spirit who wasn't brought back, mm. or it was one of those spirits. So. You know, it's a very real um, experience mm. and you, you have to be very careful how you talk to these people because mm. something can go very, very wrong if you don't do the right thing. Mm. Yeah. You know, so he was putting everybody at risk in a sense by mm. and trying to mitigate against the risk. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. There was a great sense of that. And, and, of course, another way in which he orientated people is to name the chief landmarks, mm. and and in fact they end up um, being buried on a sort of axis between Inulak, which is the hill that they were taken from, mm. and and another sacred hill called Argaluk. So they're they're be between the two, and 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 naming those places is giving them, I guess, coordinates. And um, he also at one point talks about putting the sweat, yeah. and that's really important so that the people smell. Right, right. Um, yeah. so that if he's introducing people 
those bones into a place where they may not be safe, mm. but um, he's he's got the authority for that area, so he can put his sweat um, onto this. So, um, mm. you know, very elaborate ways of making sure that people are, are safe, caring yeah. for people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, we should make some time for some audience engagement and some some questions and answers. It's been lovely to hear um, all your perspectives on the film and the many issues it raises, but I think it would be great to, you know, to have some some other points of view and, and inquiries and, and comments from, from everyone here. So um, be happy to, to engage you in that way. And I see a hand going up already, so a few. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. That was really fantastic. I wanted to ask quickly, and I understand if this question is perhaps um, maybe not relevant or whatever, and you can just let me know, but I just wanted to know a little bit more about what the University of Sydney is doing in terms of its repatriation program. I know that Matt Pohl is mm. someone who manages that. How Do you know maybe how much more the university has to do to repatriate whatever we have left or... Um, maybe if you could go into a little bit of detail as to like what that process is, that would be fantastic. Do you want me to? Yeah, I, I only know that it started in the 1970s and beyond that. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so there is um, a commitment to return all um, human remains. Um, and indeed, um, I would like to say that the museum's doing a lot to also um, repatriate um its collection in general, um, not only by handing materials to people but also by bringing people into the collections to look at things and talk about them and interpret them and sort of add to the richness of what we know about, um, if you like, artefacts within the collection. Um, the human remains are always problematic because we can't always be sure where things are from um, and people are also not always ready to receive um uh, spirits back because really what we're talking about is returning people and if they don't know who the people are um, this was really interesting to me and I love the fact that old fella said um, this I, I'm doing this because normally they wouldn't show a bone ceremony mm. like this at all but it's uh, um, I want people to know how this is how we've brought these people back so how do you do this how do you bring people back you know, for me, how do how do those people who were taken off my country and then returned, how was that done properly? I don't know. So um, it's a real issue for Aboriginal communities everywhere. There are play, communities that have got collections of um, human remains that they don't know what to do with. There's a big collection at the National Museum of Australia that people are saying keep it there until we can be sure what we should do with it. So the museum here has got a, um, an ongoing commitment to working with communities on how to return material. And recently there was this very successful one where there was a smoking ceremony and bones were taken away again. Um, I'm not an expert because I'm not directly involved with it, but I have um, constant engagement with Matt, who's a friend and colleague. And so um, I think he'd be very happy to even give a presentation on what the museum's doing, but I'd, I'd approach him directly, Matt Pohl, and our museums too. Yeah. Does that answer you again? Yeah. 
Uh, Gwenda Stanley from Maury, Gomoroi, Bujadinwan. Um, really love the work that you've done here tonight. Um, the Smithsonian Society, as we know, was established with Joseph Banks back in the day. Um, you talked about like with the re- um, bone re- re- um, reparations and also what about our carved trees? Like a lot of my ancestors oh. were born, um, buried in carved trees. Um, during flood, flood times in my country and also in the Morton Bay areas, we had big storage homes also. Um, so these storage homes and graves that also are also a part of our repatriation. Like you just said, um, the universities are looking at where do we return these home to. That's one of my goals is in the next couple of years is actually get a museum back on Gomorrah country for my ancestors to return back home to country. But also in regards to how can we work together? And as you said, we share this shared history of colonisations. We are not colonised, but yet we're not decolonised either. So we're working within a system that we need to look at our ways, old ways, new ways, and working forward together in how we deal with this and who are the appropriate people in regards to how we deal with this. And I'm openly coming on to Sydney University to actually study archaeology and anthropology. One of my biggest things was the, um, as you mentioned earlier, with the colonisations, when we looked at the regiments that came through with our country, from Joseph Banks, you had mutineer surgeons, you had botanists, you had geologists. So they had 500 years in America before they come here. So today is why you have the mining up in my, um, right throughout the Under Valley. And this is what we're saying is that a lot of desecration of our sites were also on borer grounds, which are now also colonial homesteads. We need to be looking at how do we bring these people out and engage more of our people and our younger generation, especially um, being given the opportunity to be able to be involved with this because we as, we as Aboriginal people, we have lower and re- lower enables us our accountability and our responsibility to our ancestors. So I'm hoping that, you know, the Smithsonian Society, the United States Study Centre and the Sydney University can mm-hmm. work with our people because unlike, like you mentioned earlier, the decapitation, a lot of, of our people, there was bounties on our people right up until about 1880s, right up to the 19th century. There's an old homestead up in Queensland where the, um, it's, um, the ears are still embedded onto yeah. the walls. Down in your country, I've been into a place down there near Kuma where they still have our man traps. These are the traps that they set our people in. So this sort of historical shared history we went into looking at, how we engage this and create that changing the history. Like you said earlier, you, we need to be looking at the distorted history and looking at an history where we now rewrite that curriculum in regards to also bringing our ancestors home. We talked about Pemily. That man was decapitated just like they done with William Wallace, Ed, mind, body and spirit. So these are the things we need to be looking at. Where did they go to? Because not only the Smithsonian, we had the um, the Royal Geographical Society as well that also Mm. started that. The Canadians and the Russians were also involved with that as well. If you looked at the history of the Balladeers and everyone that came through right throughout the Parramatta Concord area. Mm. So um, hopefully we can work together. I look forward to seeing you at Sydney University doing your PhD in archaeology. That sounds good. Mm, Yeah. Good luck with your study. (laughs) Yeah. Exciting. I know that, thank you for a great panel, first of all, but I know there's been a, a push and a, a report on perhaps putting together a national resting place in Canberra and placing that possibly in the parliamentary triangle. But at the same time, there's the issue of that has been discussed here that some of the, the, the human remains will not be in the right country by doing so. And I just wondered if the panel had any thoughts on that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the people who have to be 
asked about that. Are the are the Ngunnawal people um, of Canberra? Uh, because you know, as as you point out, that's a huge responsibility. Uh, but you can also see there is a great need for such an institution because not all the bone collectors were like Frank Setzler, who actually wrote the location on on the bones, which yeah. was a, was a further desecration, but also. Um, in, in a way, a gift in that it allowed them all to, because they came from various different places, and to be precisely um, returned to, to the right there's people. there's not only bones, there's a lot mm. of soft tissue as well, exactly. which is um, really problematic. So uh, because you take it out of whatever medium it's in, it degrades inst almost instantly. There, are, I was involved with a discussion around a blood sample collection that was collected, I think, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and um, so there, you know, that's human matter as well. So it's, it's a really huge conversation around what you do. With, I mean, something like a, a blood sample collection, you know, so it's in a frozen, uh, they're in fridges and um, some of them have degraded completely, but some samples are still um, so-called viable, whatever that means, but, you know, you can still extract the DNA from them, which is mm -hmm. what they were collected for originally. But it's, um, you know, the I think that's a very good point about the Nunnawal, um in Canberra. Do they really want that? They don't want this material in their country. I know that for a fact now, um, but um, what, what, what do you do with... Um, there are going to be things that no one will ever know, even where it's from. It's just there's no, no knowing. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and in the resting place, it raises the question of doing the right thing, the right rituals, in fact, to, uh, mm. to bury, um, you know, tissues or bones or whatever. Mm. So, Warami, Udri Nugri. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> Naya Buru. Naya Wabanja Wawarawari, Dia Janangai Jingarang Nura, Janangai Budput, Janangai Gumada, Janangai Nangami. So, hello, good evening, everyone. I'm Buru. Um, I'm a Wabanja Wawarawari woman, so that's you and a Darug Nation, Sydney, South Coast, New South Wales. Um, this is my grandmother's country, my heart, my spirit, and my dreaming. Um, the question for me would be that I know for sure that um, I'm the great-great-granddaughter of a person named Jimmy Governor. Oh. My Uncle Joe's, um, back at that time, he, back in 1900, he was, he was shot and... Then they took his head, which was then put into methylated spirits and brought here to the University of Sydney. How do I find out whether it's still here or it's been moved on? Well, I do know another thing too about both the Governor boys is that there are rubber death masks of their heads after they were hanged. And um, they're in the Australia, they were in the Australian Museum, so that would be something for you to... Um, find out about as well. Um, so there are those kinds of things as well. There are casts of people and quite often casts of people after they were executed. Um, 
So that pole would know if that material, if that head is still here. I don't know. I don't know about that at all, but mm. um, it's certainly worth finding out, yeah. Okay, so are you able to connect me to Yeah, him? certainly. We'll yeah. catch up afterwards. Hey? Yeah, beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. So a question here and then. <clears throat> um, thank you so much. That was a really great talk. Um, I just wanted to, I just recently read um, Dark Amy by Bruce Pascoe, and in that he kind of raised the question, you were discussing the decolonisation of um, museums, and in that I think as well he discusses the decolonisation of archaeological thought and archaeological mm. knowledge and how we've kind of marked civilizations through that kind of process so i guess maybe that's even a step further you've got kind of the material gains of decolonization decolonizing a museum but then i like what were your thoughts maybe on um the next steps for you know decolonization decolonizing an institution or a school of thought it's quite a um yeah interesting thing thank you i mean something maybe very simple or simplistic but uh um I mean, teaching English literature and last semester at ANU, I taught Ujuru, Ujuru's poem. And I'm always absolutely struck and if not appalled by uh, how little students know, young, young people know about indigenous history, about the history of the country. And let alone language. Language, yeah, yeah mm. let alone language. But um, mm. all the more so as they're really keen to know and they're really interested in it. So I think the first thing is education. How come there's so little teaching of indigenous history in this country? I'm really appalled by that. You know, students know very little. It's just by chance that they happen to have a teacher who's interested in it and she or he would tell them about it. But there's no agreement, it seems, about the significance, the absolute, you know, essential, um, um, the basics of Australian history. So what is Australian history if it starts in 1788? And how come the frontier wars is not taught? How come? I love the way the Australian curriculum works. You start off with you do get a bit of badass as Aboriginal people, but we're in some kind of – it's still we're still in some kind of strange ancient past, which we are, which is great, but um, because that's concurrent with the present for us, you know, nothing – history is a completely different concept anyway. But um, – and then you get the Egyptians. That's great. Okay, that's nice. Maybe they. And then then you come back to um, so-called Australian history, which right. is from as you say, seventeen eighty-eight on, and nothing about um, any of the important stuff like the freedom rides and mm. you know the the really interesting history of Australia, which is actually the Aboriginal political history as well. What about the Cumbergunja walk off? Anybody heard of that? I'm so sure all the blackfellas here do. But it's a really you know like why would you want to know about that? That was fantastic. You know, like people talking it up to the um, establishment. I mean, that's what Australia is supposed to be all about. We talk, we learn about Eureka. Well, we were doing that before the um, miners' strike. You know, it's a really, you know, our history is much more interesting. So, yeah, I agree with you totally. And um, our literature is fantastic, and it goes back sixty-five thousand years. Sixty-five thousand years of um, really outstanding performances mm. culminating in people like Baker Boy. Like, really, why won't you be studying this, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. decolonise that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big job there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Instead, we'll all do World War One. Yeah, that's right. Oh, God. Well, more well even it. the Blackfella history of World War One's way more interesting. Yeah. Like, um, no, it's you know. And, and yeah. needs to be known. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's about the education, like uh, the issue of education. How would you um, educate more people about that? It's a double question, actually. Um, so what tools would you use? And do you think that filmmaking and uh, on a, like to a larger audience would be a, um, a possibility? And the second question is about the filmmaking, the film that you've done. I, I haven't watched it, unfortunately, but um, uh, but decolonizing um, research because I've read some articles about from uh, Pacific um, researchers who um, who say that in order to decolonize research, uh, it's one tool would be to rely on pre-colonial uh, way of thinking and concepts. So um, can you decolonize the way of doing films or filmmaking? How would you do it if you, if you want to like not do, stop imposing like the Western way, but try to go from the point of view? Can you do that, do that or not? Or? I guess this, <laughs> this film is absolutely an exercise in that, as Martin said right at the start. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> at the very beginning, you said um, this is a film that the old fella basically crafted as you went along. So, mm. and one of the things that is a key thing in Aboriginal learning is kinesthetic learning. People learn by observation, not by just being told. So, this mm. film gives you a chance to observe and come to your own conclusions. Um, yeah, and also the element of time. I mean, I started working on it in 2012. You start in way before that. And it's, it is a necessary time, in fact, to um, find our way into the community and listen and, and, and let that trust being built up. And that's, I mean, I guess trust being going both ways and listening and observing and going back and forth and until, in a way, I mean, we've we've shown the film two weeks ago in Canberra and with um, some sons, you know, uh, um, Jacob's eldest son, and the way they're now taking ownership of it because it's the right time for them to take ownership. So I think the the question of time is an important thing in uh, in the in in that tra trajectory and itinerary, in fact. And consultation, if it goes without saying, and consultation, going back and forth and editing the film and checking with them, that is fine. And it goes without saying for us, but maybe it doesn't hurt to, to, um, to make it clear. Is there another question here? Hello, everyone. I'm, my name is called Jama Jama. I travel the world dancing. I travel everywhere. I, for my family, what do we say Baba, mean brother, he's the same family as ours. I buried 20 of our people. It's taken all around the world. It took the heartache and the pain of my people. We still suffer today. I've seen it from the Torres Strait. I've seen it from north, south, east and west. A lot of our people suffer. I came from a tribe where four over a hundred of our people got slaughtered for nothing. And out of that 400, there was only four of us. And the man who saved us, he was named McLeod, and we took on that name, McLeod. Mm -hmm. All my family, my mother's side, 
Really came see. From my father's side, we're from Victoria, all the way up to the Tanama Desert, Kanana. We have big history, big sadness. We got a lot to learn about our people. Even like when our uncle said about the bones, we got to bury the right kind of bones. If we bury the wrong bones, we'll never sleep. We'll die. That's our culture. It's been like that for thousands and thousands of years. We sing songs about everything and anything. Everything, as you know, everything that walks upon the land is a part of us. Everything that flies is a part of us. Everything that swims is a part of us. And remember, you're no different. You are part of us too. That's what we came in this world. We're all as one, but not dreaming. We've all got different dreamings. I thank you for that. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, so 2019 is the year of Indigenous languages, and I hear so much about that there's going to be uh, dual naming of streets and places within Sydney. So, but where where is that? Why you know it? Is it happening? Uh, I don't see any progress on that side of things. And what can I do to support the dual naming of places and streets in our own city? Ah, right. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, streets can't be dual named <laughs> because um, the state emergency services would never be able to find anyone. But um, geographical features get um, dual named and I've, um, I've worked for many years now with the Geographical Names Board of New South Wales to work on putting Aboriginal naming back onto country. Um, they're very keen to do it. There's a wonderful woman, Maureen um, Noddy Badger-McKay, who's now the Geographical Names Board of New South Wales's um, officer. She's Aboriginal woman from Western New South Wales to she's working all across New South Wales to work with communities, with Aboriginal people to put country, I'm looking around the room, Maury, Maury, <laughs> you and Mob um, <laughs> up in my country and old fella here, <laughs> young fella here, sorry, young fella here. <laughs> so um, we really need to, um, I guess, um, know what the names are. So one of the things you can do is um, if you know people who might know about the geographical names, um, tell the Geographical Names Board about it. But we have actually um, dual named a whole lot of points around Sydney Harbour. So it would be you could you can find out from the Geographical Names Board what those places are called and call them by their Aboriginal names. So Dawes Point where William Dawes sat down with a young woman, Bachikarang, he was the first fleet officer and wrote down this language of Sydney, Sydney mob, your language. Um, uh, he... Um, you know that place is Dara. It's not. It's not um, whatever it's called. Um, Doors Point Battery. It's Dara, and I'm sure he would prefer it was called Dara. So um, yeah. So learn the names that are there now. That's one thing you can do. So. I think we have time for one or two more quick questions. Thank you very much. That was great. Look, I've just come back from England, help, um, and I read about two stories of people, two Aboriginal people, and I'm sure there are many more, 
who died over there um, many years ago. And of course, their remains can't come back here. And I just, somehow it, it really got me. I guess that's the reason I'm here now. One of them was the person who went over with Benelong. Yemwari, um, who I think he mm. died in 1793. And the other one was on the first um, Aboriginal cricket, cricket tour in 1868. I think a guy called Charlie Rose from memory. And I, I just sort of wonder what, um, has anything been done? I mean, I know there's a graveyard for Yemwari, but his body's not there and never been found. And I think it's under a new church that's been built. But it just sort of struck me that their their spirits are still over there and they should be here. Um, and I'm just sort of asking your thoughts about that. There was some ceremony conducted some years ago um, and there was a thought that his head was somewhere, the obsession, British obsession with head hunting. What is this? Mm-hmm. It must be your Celtic ancestry. I believe they were, they were the streets of London apparently were lined with um, rows of heads along the, because the Celts were headhunters. That's why the Romans loved them in their armies because they scared the hell out of people. I'm scared of headhunters. But anyway, so his head apparently was somewhere. There was some thought, but it was never authenticated, Yimrawani. But um, there was a ceremony conducted when they found his um, gravestone. So I think that's pretty much all that, I mean, there's not much else we can do. But um, the head of other famous people like Yagan from Western Australia, Pemui, these have been repatriated and dealt with. I just had a question. Um, this is a wonderful occasion. I'm blessed that I'm here, really. I'm living in this country for nearly 30 years and completely arrogant and ignorant to the history of this place regarding Aboriginal people, but very keen to learn. I went to Canada last year and learned horrible things that happened to Aboriginal people in that country. Um, what's the life of your film? Is it possible, you know, what I'm thinking now, even didn't see the film, my, my only thought through the whole presentation is every child in this country, every student in this country needs to see things like this. That's the only way how we move forward and learn from the past and learn what is the best for the future. Is it any chance that you actually work with educational department and offer film to be distributed through the schools? Well, we'd love that truly, wouldn't we? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, you can buy DVDs and it it is distributed in Australia. It's going to be shown on NITV in a few, starting in a few months' time, and is going to be shown on um, ABC during NIDOC week, just for a, a month. Will be available on iView, but it's very limited. You know, uh, ABC only. Yeah, yeah. ABC didn't want to to buy it, and for a variety of reasons, and only bad reasons. <laughs> and I, I mean, we're showing it festivals, and it's got an amazing reception, but I guess the education market would be um, an obvious thing. And I think that some universities are buying it and... We'll see. So we'll see, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Help welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you all. I mean, that's a very lovely kind of engagement and thank you for your your questions and your your time. I just want to try to bring things together here for just one moment at the end, if I can. I mean, it's a a film and a conversation that raises so many complex and and painful issues, Um, but also, I think, kind of hope and and a way to look forward to the future. Um, And so, you know, film 
language. Do you want to leave us with any thoughts about it, its power to, to kind of do good and, and leave us with any kind of, you know, things to, to take with us, I suppose, when we leave? I think the, uh, I mean, what always struck me and what what's, is still striking me is the way um, indigenous cultures um, are amazingly integrative. They're amazingly fluid. And we see, I mean, we see that in the film, the way the old man created that ceremony to bury the bone. There was not such a thing as a ceremony for repatriation. So it's, we see him creating that ceremony and hesitating and but getting to the end of it. So I think that's, yeah, the way innovation is inherent in uh, indigenous cultures and the way indigenous cultures are assimilating and integrating elements of a white culture in a way that is not true of white culture. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, for me, well, you know, I think, you know, the film is a great experience and externalization of a, a process of teaching and what's the ultimate message about that? Um, well, certainly the one that I've drawn from it is, is to do with respect and it's to do, it's to do with respect for others. And I think, you know, what I learned from that, that old man was that uh, death does not alter our obligation of respect uh, to other people. Uh, death has no bearing on that at all. And uh, had people been cognizant of that in 1948 and put that into practice, we wouldn't have had you know, the terrible story that we end up telling in this film. It's also quite a beautiful story. It has a good ending. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, for me, I guess the real good in this is that so many Aboriginal people here today and um, everybody else, um, I hate that other, but you're not other, um, all yeah. of us have responded to this film and so those um, people who've come back home um, have been part of it all tonight and I think that's what this film does more than anything and um, I think old fella too, old man, he's... Um, you know, he's part of, he's, you know, there's a sense of him. I feel like he said they were sitting next to him. I feel like he's sitting here. Mm, oh, yeah. that's, this is bloody good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wanted us all to see it. He wanted us all to be here. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Let's have a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. And I hope you take something from this way with you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.